Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. There is a famous Agatha Christie novel called The Murder on the Orient Express. And in the story, the novelist is unpacking a mystery of how somebody ended up getting murdered. Some rich American was found lying dead in the train car, stabbed 12 times, both doors left locked from the inside. And as the passengers are now starting to discover this, there's a snowstorm that causes the train to be stuck there. And they're left knowing that someone on the train is a murderer. And the detective is trying to unpack the clues. And at one point he says, the impossible cannot have happened. Therefore, the impossible must be possible in spite of appearances. Like most mysteries, we come to confront something that seems impossible or something that seems unexplainable, only to find out in the end the revealing of the truth. In our story, as we come to Daniel chapter 2, you find a mystery that the king himself cannot solve. Not all the king's horses or all the king's men could resolve the mystery of the king's dream. And we'll take a look at this. It's a longer reading from Daniel chapter 2. We'll look at it in three sections, verses 1 through 16, looking at how the world attempts to control our outcomes. Verses 17 through 13, how Daniel and his friends respond. And then verses 31 through 45, how God responds. I'm going to be reading a paraphrase of the New Living Translation as we look at the story from verses 1 through 16 to begin with. One night during the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had such disturbing dreams that he couldn't sleep. He called in his magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers, and he demanded that they tell him what he had dreamed. As they stood before the king, he said, I have had a dream that deeply troubles me, and I must know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, Long live the king. Tell us the dream, and we will tell you what it means. But the king said to the astrologers, I am serious about this. If you don't tell me what my dream was and what it means, you will be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. But if you tell me what I dreamed and what the dream means, I will give you many wonderful gifts and honors. Just tell me the dream and what it means. They said again, please, your majesty. Tell us the dream, and we will tell you what it means. The king replied, I know what you are doing. You're stalling for time, because you know I am serious when I say, if you don't tell me the dream, you are doomed. So you have conspired to tell me lies, hoping I will change my mind. But tell me the dream, and then I, 
I'll know that you can tell me what it means. The astrologers replied to the king, No one on earth can tell the king his dream, and no king, however great and powerful, has ever asked such a thing of any magician, enchanter, or astrologer. The king's demand is impossible. No one except the gods can tell you your dream, and they do not live here among people. The king was furious when he heard this, and he ordered that all the wise men of Babylon be executed. And because of the king's decree, men were sent to find and kill Daniel and his friends. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, came to kill them, Daniel handled the situation with wisdom and discretion. He asked Arioch, why has the king issued such a harsh decree? So Arioch told him all that had happened. Daniel went at once to see the king and requested more time to tell the king what the dream meant. Impossible, the astrologers say. These are called Chaldeans. And in the text, the Chaldeans represent a class of the king's associates and cabinet. They're a certain group of men who are well-educated from the beginning to the end in Babylonian history, mythology, religion, science. And they're the experts in these areas. They do exactly what is expected of them up to a certain point. What they think of as wisdom is expertise, scholarship, smarts, training. And as they're considering the king's question, they go to the normal process. Now, the normal method for interpreting dreams in that religion is that first you would tell the person your dream. First, you would tell the, the wise men your dream, and they would in turn then research it. They'd go to the Babylonian commentaries and historical writings on the subject to find out what the symbolism means. They would research, study, and then they'd come back with an interpretation. In fact, it's part of their job description to interpret dreams along with other things. These Chaldean wise men were also in charge of divination. Now, divination would include something called omens. So when something foreboding or some prediction of the future comes to the king, they're meant to direct the king, advise him in war and peace, in negotiations, advise him in terms of his family and future. And they would use weird, what would seem strange to us, methods of determining this, such as cutting out a sheep's liver and examining it. And however strange it might seem, these practices to us, to them, it was expertise. It was, in fact, the same sort of education that Daniel himself would have had in his three years at Babylonian University. Daniel would have been trained in the same expertise, science, history, and so on, 
And yet, when it comes down to the method for Daniel dealing with it, it's much different. So the wise men have an understandable objection when they say that it's not right of the king to ask them. No one has ever asked such a thing. It's impossible, they say, that not only would they interpret the dream, but that they could tell the king what the dream was. You see, predicting dreams and visions, that was a different job. That's the work of a prophet, and that wasn't their expertise. They do what you would expect any wise person to do, want time to study the matter, to think, to train. And so how often does the world try to attempt to control the outcomes based on expertise, based on training, insight, scholarship, how smart you are and how accomplished you are in your education. But it does no good here. In fact, it is useless, all the education. As Proverbs 26, verse 9 says, like a thorn bush in the hand of a drunk is a proverb in the mouth of a fool. It doesn't matter how much you know, there are going to be situations in life which are mysteries. And no learning and expertise can ever unpack this. And so the king, in response, is not interested in excuses. Now, the king responds the way we'd expect a king to respond, especially a rather agitated king, a short-tempered king, an impatient king. This king woke up grumpy. It's one of those days. Only when the king wakes up grumpy, it's, it's a whole other outcome. It's a whole other result that we're dealing with. He gets angry. He gets furious to the point that he's ready to have his whole order of wise men, astrologers, all the investment and years of training and education and food and clothing and housing. He's just going to wipe it all out and start over because he, he's that upset. What do we do when we confront problems we can't resolve? Mysteries that we cannot unpack. Someone once told me the number one reason men become depressed. It seems obvious to me now, but the number one reason men become depressed is because they face a problem they can't solve. And when you face a problem you can't solve and you work it and work it and work it and your goal is to solve it, well, pretty soon you start to despair. Now, I think there's another part to that, too, is if you don't get depressed, you might get angry. So facing a problem you can't solve can lead you to despair or it can lead you to violence. What do we do when we face a problem that's outside of our control? Well, Daniel responds with godly character. You notice it mentions his, he handles the situation with wisdom and discretion. He doesn't panic like all the astrologers are panicking right now. He doesn't get angry at God. Why did you put me in this stupid place? 
around all these stupid people making stupid decisions, and now I have to pay the price? No, he simply asks, what's going on? And because he's already established a good relationship with the king's commander, he gets more time. Let's look at what follows. Verse 17. When Daniel went home and told his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Arizaiah, what had happened, he urged them to ask the God of heaven to show them his mercy by telling them the secret so they would not be executed along with the other wise men of Babylon. That night, the secret was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven. He said, and now the writer turns to a poem. He changes the pattern of writing and rhythm to picture this as a song. Praise the God of heaven forever and ever, for he has had all wisdom and power. He controls the course of world events. He removes kings and sets up other kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the scholars. He reveals deep and mysterious things and knows what lies hidden in darkness, though he is surrounded by light. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors, for you have given me wisdom and strength. You have told me what we asked of you and revealed to us what the king demanded. Then Daniel went in to see Ariat, whom the king had ordered to execute the wise men of Babylon. Daniel said to him, don't kill the wise men. Take me to the king, and I will tell him the meaning of his dream. Ariok quickly took Daniel to the king and said, I have found one of the captives of Judah who will tell the king the meaning of his dream. The king said to Daniel, also known as Belteshazzar, Is this true? Can you tell me what my dream was and what it means? Daniel replied, There are no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or fortune tellers who can reveal the king's secret. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the future. Now, I will tell you your dream and the visions you saw as you lay on your bed. While your majesty was sleeping, you dreamed about upcoming events, He who reveals secrets had shown you this is going to happen. And it is not because I am wiser than anyone else that I know the secret of your dream, but because God wants you to understand what was in your heart. How do Daniel and his friends respond when they're confronted with a problem that has no solution? when they're faced with a situation that everyone else says is impossible. They don't turn to their books, and they don't turn back to their education, and they don't turn and run away. They turn to the king, but not the king of Babylon. 
They turn to the true king in prayer. In fact, it's revealed to them in their prayers that night, which causes Daniel to respond with a song. Now, when the writers in the Hebrew Old Testament turn to a poem, it means that the whole story wants you to stop what you're doing and pay attention. And for many of us looking back on Sunday school, we probably remember a little bit about this story. Maybe we remember that picture of the great statue with its head of gold. Maybe remember some other stories in Daniel. But if you don't pay attention to this here before you get that far, you might miss the whole point. And so like a musical that's been going along in the story, now Daniel breaks into song. And he praises the name of the Lord God in heaven. And he says that he reveals deep and mysterious things and makes known what is hidden in darkness. At the end of this section, he points out that it's not because he's wiser, more well-educated, more skilled in this subject or that subject that has gotten him to where he's at and been able to reveal this. Instead, he says it's because God revealed it. The God in heaven who sees all things. So unlike the king's wise men, they aren't really wise at all. This is true wisdom. Wisdom which comes from God alone. There is a God in heaven who grants apocalypses. If you remember back to what I've been emphasizing about that word apocalypse, it means there's a God who uncovers mysteries. And the apocalypse is not all the crazy things happening in the story. The apocalypse is the unveiling of the simple thing God is doing behind it all. And that is ruling. God's in charge. God reveals mysteries to those who trust in him. How many times in scripture do you see this happening when you think of the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus? And he's on that road thinking he's going to the city of Damascus for one thing, which is to carry out God's wishes and execute Christians. He's had all his training. He learned from the great teacher Gamaliel, who was famous in his day for his Hebrew teaching. He knew all of the practices of their tradition and faith. He was an expert in everything except for one thing, and that is who is Jesus. And that's when he's blinded by the light of Jesus, and he's made to see with his heart that he was all wrong. That is an apocalypse, apocalypse when Paul says that it's not to the wise and the noble and the most accomplished and most well-put-together lives that God reveals these things, but he says the cross instead is foolishness to the Greeks. It's foolishness to the Babylonians. But to us who are being saved, prayer and faith is the wisdom of God. Which is why we read from Matthew 11 how Jesus said, 
to his disciples. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to children. So God hides these things from the king. He hides these things from his experts. He hides them from the world. But to those who are simple in their faith, patient and prayerful, he reveals them to children. And Jesus says, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden. So Daniel continues, In your vision, your majesty, you saw before you, standing before you, a huge shining statue of a man. It was a frightening sight. The head of the statue was made of fine gold. Its chest and arms were silver, Its belly and thighs were bronze, its legs were iron, and its feet were a combination of iron and baked clay. As you watched, a rock was cut from a mountain, but not by human hands. It struck the feet of iron and clay, smashing them to bits. The whole statue was crushed into small pieces of iron, clay, bronze, silver, and gold. Then the wind blew them away without a trace, like chaff on a threshing floor. But the rock that knocked the statue down became a great mountain that covered the whole earth. That was the dream. Now we will tell the king what it means. Your majesty, you are the greatest of kings. The God of heaven has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and honor. He has made you the ruler over all the inhabited world and has even put the wild animals and birds under your control. You are the head of gold. You can already see the king kind of puffing his chest up at this good news. But after your kingdom comes to an end, another kingdom inferior to yours will rise to take your place. And that kingdom, and after that kingdom has fallen, a third kingdom, represented by bronze, will rise to rule the world. Following that kingdom, there will be a fourth one, as strong as iron. That kingdom will smash and crush all previous empires, just as iron smashes and crushes everything it strikes. The feet and toes you saw were a combination of iron and baked clay showing that this kingdom will be divided. Like iron mixed with clay, it will have some strength of iron, but while some parts of it will be as strong as iron, other parts will be as weak as clay. This mixture of iron and clay also shows that these kingdoms will try to strengthen themselves by forming alliances with each other through intermarriage, but they will not hold together just as iron and clay do not mix. During the reigns of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. It will crush all these kingdoms into nothing, and it will stand forever. That is the meaning of the rock cut from the mountain, though not by human hands, 
that crushed to pieces the statue of iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold. The great God was showing the king what will happen in the future. The dream is true and its meaning is certain. Then King Nebuchadnezzar threw himself down before Daniel and worshipped him. And he commanded his people to offer sacrifices and burn sweet incense before him. The king said to Daniel, Truly your God is the greatest of gods, the Lord over kings, a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this secret. Then the king appointed Daniel to a high position and gave him many valuable gifts. He made Daniel ruler over the whole province of Babylon, as well as chief over all his wise men. As Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be in charge of all the affairs of the province of Babylon, while Daniel remained in the king's court. If I could summarize it all for you, despite all outward appearances, Despite all mysteries, secrets, and problems you can't solve, God's got this. He's got it. He's showing to Daniel. He's showing to his three friends. Showing to all the Israelites. Showing to the king and all his wise men. He's showing to all Babylon, and now he's showing all, to all of us. There's only one king. The image that he shows to Nebuchadnezzar reveals that it's nothing more than a mirage, a dream that men think is real. Power, greatness, accomplishment, and riches. But it's just an image. Now, an image has an important purpose. Back to the Garden of Eden, image was supposed to be What human beings were meant to represent. A reflection of the true king in how we govern this world. But the image that Nebuchadnezzar sees is an image completely corrupted by human sin. Pride. Grabbing after power and it is going to be utterly shattered in the end. Which is why Jesus said to Pontius Pilate, you would have no power here if it weren't given for, for, from above. And the bigger they are, the harder they fall. You see the kingdoms transitioning, which is laid out on the sheet, inserted in your bulletins, from the Babylonians to the Persians to the Greeks to the Romans and on and on to this mixture One is rich and superior of gold. One is not quite as good as gold, but it's still silver. One is a little weaker, but it rules all the earth with Alexander the Great. One is great and strong with legs of iron, the Roman Empire marching throughout the world in their chariots and with their weaponry. And then the mixing of all these kingdoms as some make alliances and others don't. And in the end, this mixture is just too brittle to stand. 
because in the end, there's only one that'll stand. It's the mountain of the Lord. And God shows to the king that while he might have power now, there is a rock that's going to be cut out of a cliff to come smashing down on all these kingdoms and that great image that man thinks is everything is just going to be shattered rubble. Jesus told a parable that proved the exact same point when he told to the religious leaders in power. He said there was a man who had a vineyard and he leased out that vineyard to servants and The servants took charge of the vineyard and they worked it day after day and oversaw it. And when the king sent his servants to see how the stewards of the vineyard had fared with their fruit and harvest, they abused the servants and they killed them. So the king said, I'll send them my son. They'll surely listen to my son. The son showed up in the vineyard to see what fruit and harvest they had to share with the master. And they said, this is the king's son. Let us kill him and we'll steal the inheritance. And then Jesus said to all of them, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And on whomever it falls... It will crush them and grind them to powder. Now it's a strong statement, this rock coming to crush these kingdoms. And we wonder, when will that be? What will it look like? Throughout the generations, many religious figures in Christianity and Judaism have looked at this passage and said, it's time for a revolution. But Jesus wasn't preaching revolution in the way we think. Instead, there's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. That the mystery of Christ's kingdom is not going to be seen with outward observation. It's only going to be seen by the miracle of the Holy Spirit who will tear down our idols and the images that we have in our head and heart and in our dreams and raise up a mountain That Christ will stand on victorious. From the cross to the resurrection, God shows who's in charge. Amen.